0: welcome to the buddha sasana podcast this talk was given by bhikkhu Chintita in austin texas During the last 12 weeks, we've investigated the traditional social structure of the Buddha sasana, in particular, the roles of the monastic and lay communities, the differentiation into adept and folk Buddhism, and the critical importance of refuge in holding it all together. This is a structure that has replicated itself in every diverse Asian land that the Buddhist sasana has entered and been carried by every tradition with a degree of variation due to local social norms or politics in these final two talks i want to assess the current state of modern buddhism as the sasana is passed from east to west today i'll talk primarily about the historical aspects of the process and next week I'll talk about the modern challenges. By the way, an excellent book on the history of the Western, particularly American, encounter with Buddhism is Rick Field's book, How the Swans Came to the Lake. It's a page-turner, a fun book to read, as well as very informative. The words modern and West in relation to Buddhism is itself problematic since there is a significant Asian diaspora in the geographical West, families of Asian origin who speak Asian languages at home and maintain much of Asian culture, and there has been a long process of Westernization in Asia. I think a good metric of your personal modernity or Westernness, whatever your geographical location or family origin, is to what extent you eat with a fork. Eating utensils seem to me to be a reliable cultural indicator. For instance, if you're taking a whirlwind tour around Asia and wonder if you are currently in a Theravada country or a Mahayana country, just look outside or go to restaurants. And if most people are eating with chopsticks, You are definitely in a Mahayana country. Anthropologists of the future will call us the fork culture. Historically, many of these adaptations of Buddhism to new lands have been challenging. Certainly that from India to Central Asia and then to the land of the chopstick because of enormous cultural barriers incipient Buddhists must wrap their heads around many foreign concepts, but to do so they rely on an indigenous matrix of conceptual, behavioral, and affective categories understood in the existing folk culture. The Chinese case provides a useful analogy to what is happening in the West. Robert Scharf, a scholar in Berkeley, describes how after Buddhists began trickling into China from the Silk Road about the first century AD, early efforts at translating Buddhist texts of Indian and Central Asian origin had to make use of a largely Taoist conceptual scheme and vocabulary, a system of concept matching, ko-i. Buddhism seems, as a consequence, to have been originally mistaken for a form of Taoism in which the Buddha served as a god with certain supernatural powers. At this stage, Buddhism was probably almost entirely folk Buddhism. There was little evidence that teacher monks made the long journey into China from India or Central Asia in great numbers nor that any schools of Buddhism were founded by such monks. Instead, over time, a handful of translator monks did arrive and set to work producing Chinese versions of scriptures, which then circulated, were read, and discussed by and among educated Chinese in the Chinese language, mixed in with apocryphal scriptures of Chinese origin that embedded Buddhist ideas into a Taoist cosmology. A very occasional Chinese pilgrim would make the decades-long trip into India and back to train with the adepts, fetch scriptures back, and then teach to Chinese disciples. But early Chinese Buddhism was remarkably insular and remarkably slim in the way of guidance from foreign adepts. It took centuries to develop authentic, adept Buddhist traditions in China. An analogous process is going on in the modern West, in modern times. In this case, the indigenous influence has been largely of Christian Protestant and scientific rationalist origin. And the result is, in fact, commonly called by scholars Protestant Buddhism. Interestingly, the development of this Protestant-Buddhist hybrid began not in Europe or America, but in Asia, particularly in Ceylon and Japan in the 19th century. In both of these nations, Buddhism was challenged to modernize according to Western standards because of Western colonial and empirical pressure. In both of these nations, a Western-educated elite was in the making, and in Ceylon, many Protestant schools had been educating youngsters for decades. The challenge to these cultures was the presumption of the superiority of Western culture in general, along with Western science and technology and of the non-heathen Christian faith in particular. In these desperate times for a dispirited East, Asian Buddhists with Western educations, people who undoubtedly knew how to wield a fork, began to promote the idea of a Buddhism that was compatible with Protestant values, yet of superior rationality and of greater compatibility than Christianity with modern science. David McMahon, in his book The Making of Buddhist Modernism, also an excellent read, writes that in accord with the Protestant Reformation, each individual could have unmediated access to God and hence had no need for special places, priests, icons, or rituals. Sacredness began to withdraw from things and to be pushed to two poles, God himself beyond the world in the individual in his or her own faith. This aspect was then pushed further by scientific rationalism. Recall that Protestantism was a protest movement against the excesses of Catholic religiosity the hybrid that emerged in Buddhist Asia, was a kind of Buddhism scrubbed of much of its religiosity and folk elements and thereby spotlessly suitable for the Protestant-influenced West. It was successfully applied in Ceylon, where Buddhism survived a rising tide of Christian missionary exuberance. In a well-publicized series of debates between the silver-tongued orator Venerable Gunananda and the Westland clergyman David De Silva from the mid-1860s to early 1870s, the Buddhist protagonist was able to position his religion as more rational and modern than that of his interlocutor. One of these debates was published in London to great interest and read, among many other people, by Colonel Henry Steele Altcott in America, who had been a Union officer in the American Civil War and who was so inspired by the Buddhist message in these debates that he went to Ceylon and eventually became supposedly the first person of European descent officially to convert to Buddhism. Shaku Soenroshi of Japan and Anigataka Dharmapala of Ceylon, a protege of Altkut, presented and made a big splash at the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893, which was part of the Chicago World's Fair. Dharmapala described Buddhism for his Western audiences as free from theology, priestcraft, rituals, ceremonies, dogmas, heavens, hells, and other theological sybilleths. D.T. Suzuki, at that time a young disciple of Soan Roshi, would help splosh the emerging hybrid into the 20th century, becoming a Harvard professor and popularizing the concept of Zen in America. The result of these developments in Asia and then in the West were a renewed confidence for Asians in the strength of their own culture and faith and a cascade of interest in Buddhism for the West. Also worth mentioning is the beginning of the Vipassana movement in Myanmar, which also had similar origins, which we'll discuss next week. Of course, almost any Buddhist tradition could use a good scrubbing and can afford to lose much of its religious muck, but certainly in the hands of many a nursemaid, authentic functions may have been inadvertently thrown out with the bathwater. It would be a shame to lose the carefully designed structure of the sasana altogether, successfully carried in all traditions over millennia, simply because it looks like something vaguely disagreeable to the Western framers of the debate. Probably most Western Buddhism today, certainly the secular Buddhist wing, is a variant of Protestant Buddhism, much of it scoured to the bone. Scharf expresses surprise that Western Buddhism seems to share the insularity of early Chinese Buddhism, that in spite of expanding possibilities of communication in the modern world, Westerners read books by each other and only infrequently appraise the fidelity of their understanding against any Asian norms. Scharf even wonders if improved contact with India would have really made any difference in the development of Chinese Buddhism. The danger of a Buddhist hybrid is that the resulting sasana may miss essential functionality. In fact, also in colonial times, the urban Western educated class began to hold the sangha in contempt. For two reasons. First, because of its largely rural origin, it lacked Western education and knowledge of the Western world. And second, the educated elite had learned to map Buddhism to Protestant standards that minimized the role of clergy. The result was the development of lay Buddhism with many of the weaknesses of much of Protestant Christianity the creation of sects by charismatic, self-authorized individuals who sometimes claim to possess special insights and to represent true Buddhism. A similar process has more recently emerged with the so-called New Buddhism in Japan, sects such as Soka Gakkai that have eliminated clergy altogether. And, as Robert Scharf describes, rely for their authority not on lineage, not on any special training or study, but on charismatic lay leaders who claim some special experience. Much is found in many evangelical or charismatic Christian sects in America that also tend to disappear or splinter with the loss of a leader. This seems to be the lot of a folk Buddhism that becomes loose from its adept moorings. Most of Western, certainly American Buddhism, is a direct transplant from the East, through immigration from Eastern lands. Generally, when a critical mass of people from a particular culture find themselves in the same city or town in the West, they get together, purchase some property, found a monastery which also functions as a community center, then they recruit monks or nuns from abroad to relocate there. Often these small Buddhist communities are isolated by language and culture from other Buddhist communities in the area. They encounter Western culture primarily as their westernized younger generation grows up. Buddhists or would-be Buddhists of non-Asian descent in the West found meditation groups, then temples, and read books on Buddhism. A relatively few find their way into ethnic Asian centers or travel to Asia to practice Buddhism. The ones who do often end up becoming teachers in Western communities. The first thing to notice about Western Buddhism for instance, is found in America, is that the traditional Sangha is as yet almost completely absent. There are maybe about 200 full-fledged monastics in America, me being one of them. Relatively few Western Buddhists have direct contact with monks or nuns, and most have never even met one. Nonetheless, prominent monastic teachers and authors known as a, at a distance through books and other media, are highly influential and active in the West. The late Thich Nhat Hanh, the Dalai Lama, Pema Chodron, Bhante Gunaratana, Tuptan Chodron, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Ajahn Sumedho, and so on. All of these are widely regarded as wise people, excellent resources for conveying the Dharma and exemplary role models just not physically present for most of us. At the local level, the role of formal adepts among Westerners is probably most closely represented variously by ordained priests in the Japanese or sometimes Korean Zen traditions, typically with some training in a monastic setting, by certified lay lamas, in the Tibetan tradition, many of whom have lived in a cave for three years, and by a number of ex-monastics, primarily trained in the Theravada countries of Asia, and by various Buddhist scholars who also practice Buddhism. Unfortunately, this does not constitute a set of adepts that is consistently recognized as such by the wider community. And in fact, the value of any kind of clerical authority is dismissed by many in the West, even in the best of circumstances. Moreover, many in the Western Buddhist community are confused by the conflicting standards concerning teacher qualifications, by the only rough conformity among the views and methods of the teachers trained in diverse Asian traditions, and by the strong admixture of charismatic but totally self qualified lay teachers, popular bloggers, and even self certified arahants. This is not to say that there are not many excellent adept lay teachers in the West. Most of these have trained in close proximity to the Asian Sangha. Significantly, the word Sangha itself, the third gem, is generally applied to the community at large, contrary to any Asian usage of which I am aware. For instance, lending this word to names for informal weekly meditation and discussion groups. The plum blossom Sangha is the local Tithyat Han group that meets in a yoga studio once a week here in Austin, Texas. I got curious about the origin of this generalized usage of the word Sangha when I was living in Myanmar in 2009. I emailed the late scholar John McRae, a specialist in East Asian Buddhism, about this. And he emailed me back. What he said was, I agree that the Western usage of Sangha to include ordained and lay practitioners and believers, is unusual or idiosyncratic. Still, this is standard usage in the West. Nonetheless, Buddhism in the land of the fork has some notable strengths. In particular, Western Buddhists tend to be highly educated, at least so far, Someone did a demographic study of Western American Buddhism some time ago and discovered that the average level of education is postgraduate. Go to any Zen center or Shambhala center and you will find many professors, educators, engineers, psychotherapists, and other professionals. Interestingly, the study also found that Republicans were outnumbered three to one by members of the Green Party. Not that Republicans are not welcome. This means that Western Buddhists actually study Buddhism to a degree that is probably unprecedented in Asian history. And adept knowledge is therefore more widely spread in the lay community rather than largely concentrated in the official monastic sangha, at least so far. However, practice among these intellectual adepts is often narrowly limited to meditation, as we'll see next week. Also, the entrance of Buddhism into a new culture has often historically represented a renewal of the tradition in which crystallized understandings are reevaluated and fruitful new ideas developed. Dogen in 13th century Japan is an example of one of the brilliant minds that emerged in just such a juncture. Moreover, Western methods of scholarship are proving invaluable, giving us a more comprehensive view of the Dharma and the Sasana than has ever been available since the time of the Buddha. Let's stop here for now. I want to continue this discussion a little further next week to give an idea of what is Dharma and what is folk Buddhism in Western Buddhism today. Yes, there is a Western folk Buddhism. In fact, it's probably in a more advanced state than Western adept Buddhism so far. And in particular, I want to look at the modern meditation movement, which has become so significant in the West. This in turn will give us a way to segue into the series of talks that I promised to begin next on the satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness or insight or vipassana meditation.